Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. When Layson and I started the fifth quarter, we made a promise to bring our listeners difference makers. And tonight, uh, we're over the top. Not only are our guests going to challenge your thinking, but they're also going to leave their DNA, I think, on your heart. It's, uh, they're the best duo, I think, since Lennon and McCartney, Lason. Uh, wow. You know, we're setting the bar high, but Chris Edmonds, Mark Babbitt, they're the co-authors of the best-selling book, Good Comes First, How Today's Leaders Create an Uncompromising Company Culture that doesn't suck, which just captures you right away. And I'll give a little bit of their bios, but we could fill the show with, with their bios and then, then we'll jump in. But Chris is the founder, CEO of Purposeful Culture Group. He's a keynote speaker worldwide. He's been featured Wall Street Journal, Forbes, senior consultant with Ken Blanchard Companies top 100 leadership speaker, top 10 culture experts, musician, which we're going to get to, an author of The Culture Engine, and Mark Babbitt's a, a veteran father, baseball extraordinaire, although we don't agree on teams. He's a <laughs> former coach, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, a top 100 leadership speaker, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, an engineer that worked with high-tech clients, healthcare, nonprofits, author of A World Gone Social. And um, it, it, this is just great. And maybe before I jump in with our questions, if Chris, maybe you take a quick time out and fill us in on your journey, and then we'll hand the baton to Mark to take us, and then Layson and I can jump in. Boy, that's great. And it's delightful to join all three of you. And um, leadership journeys, as, as you all have described for yourself, Mark and I are still on that same journey. I've had some brilliant bosses. I've had some world-class, awful bosses and coaches. And, and I started in the nonprofit world. I was a nonprofit executive 15 years, and I learned a great deal about how you inspire adults to go out and raise money for you and get up at six in the morning and schlep tables for the committee meeting. Everything is about relationships in that kind of environment. And as I moved then into the corporate world, I got a lot of shock because there were typically as good a bosses in my nonprofit field and as good a bosses in the corporate world, but there were fewer of them. There was such a focus upon getting crap out the door, whatever it is, and relationships came 10th, maybe even 20th. So, so my, my opportunity to really get into leadership development came with the Ken Blanchard companies. And I learned a great deal from, from Ken. He, he, I, I co-authored a book with 34 of our colleagues. It wasn't a huge co-author thing, right, way back when. But learned a great deal from Ken and still do. And so um, delighted to have been able to join forces with Mark. We've known each other about eight years or so. 
And uh, this book has been bubbling for almost that long. So uh, I'll, I'll not take any more uh, time with our book stuff, but let's hear from Mark. Well, uh, I agree with you, Chris. Thrilled to be here. Um, always great to have a, a leadership conversation, especially one that includes the coaching perspective, which I'm um, near and dear to my heart. So uh, as you said in the introduction, Jeff, uh, I'm an engineer by trade and absolutely hated it. Um, uh, it. It did take me about nine years to realize that driving to the same Silicon Valley building in the Silicon Valley traffic, for, uh, you know, walking into the same cubicle to stare at the same monitor, only took me nine years to realize how much that sucked. And, and then... Um, without even talking to my then wife, I threw my hands up and said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. This isn't who I'm supposed to be. And this culture sucks. And, um, and so I, uh, I, I went to startup route, you know, coming from Silicon Valley, I didn't know what else to do. Um, did that for about 20 years. And one of my startups was a, was a, um, an, an ed tech startup that helped, college students, young professionals, recent graduates ascend into the workplace, perhaps more gracefully than they would without us. And it turned out that we th we thought we were helping people go get their dream jobs. And it wasn't just my experience with company culture that sucked. We were sending college kids out, not to their dream job, but to nightmares. And so I, quite some time ago, before I met Chris said, you know what, we got to start working on the other end of this. We're, we're helping young adults prepare for the workplace, but we're, the workplace isn't prepared for young adults. And, and so that became my, my primary focus. And um, one day I was sitting in, uh, Chris and I had known each other on social media for quite some time, but one day I was at uh, one of the closing keynotes at a conference in Chicago about company culture, and um, Chris was in the front row. And we started talking that night, and we haven't shut up since. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a good night. All right, so I'm going to throw this out. Old school. This is my company business. All I care about is results. I don't care about, Chris, your feelings. Mark, I don't care that it's a toxic work environment. I don't care about any of that. I just want results. Chris, I'm not going to respect you, but just sell more widgets or more <laughs> produce more. How, how do we change what's going on from old school to modern day? Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that's, that's a, that's a big chasm to close, but we think we're onto something here. One of the interesting parts of, of this book journey with Mark and I was we really started it to help educate leaders about younger generations, about Gen Zs, about Gen Ys, Gen Ys who are being forced into baby boomer kind of thinking. Um, and, and it just hurt their heads and hurt their hearts and it hurts business. So when, when the pandemic came about and we had to rather, oh, throw 80% of our manuscript out, it was almost done. But what was interesting was that the reaction to toxic workplaces, which has been for decades, remember disgruntled.com? We had internet platforms where people could complain about their lousy bosses long before TikTok and long before Twitter. So there's been lousy bosses for a long time. But what was interesting was 
the choice that people began to make. Senior leaders left companies, middle managers left companies, frontline workers said, screw this, you know, you haven't respected me yet, and I've been here five years. So there is a tsunami of, of employees and leaders leaving organization, and it continues today. I think we're over 60 million since January 2021 of people in the U.S. alone who voluntarily quit. And so the real disconnect is that things like working from home, having autonomy over what you do, when you do it, when you respond to email, when you send emails, there's been a wholesale change in the way work is done in many quarters. But leadership hasn't changed. Leaders are still pushing for employees to come back to the old normal and come into the office. And the reality is that that horse has left the barn. And, and so there is a legitimate core disconnect between how baby boomer kinds of thinking is no longer attracting smart people, talented people who will come and work their butts off for you for 20 years. It's not going to happen anymore. Mark, what did I miss? Well, I don't think you missed anything. Well, uh, um, let's go to the root cause. Uh, the, the root cause from uh, Chris and I's work and our research for Good Comes First showed us that 100% of the problems are caused by about 90% of leaders. And those 90% of those leaders are old white guys. And, and it is... Um, an epidemic of its own. It's it's hard. Think about it in our line of work. We we go in and help companies build that uncompromising culture. Well, what happens when you're one third of the way through the process and you find out the reason the culture sucks is because of that old school leader and and his autocratic ways and his his um, lack of empathy and lack of vulnerability and. What do you do then? Well, we face that all the time. And and uh, when we get a call from a new client and it's a female, Chris and I jump up and down because they don't have the same leadership problems, this this the same old school problems that 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 many old white guys have. And and so that you asked, how do we how do we fix this? How do we move to a more modern age? We gotta finally put the industrial age. And that command and control leadership, we've got to put that behind us. And, and it's going to happen. You're either going to be an empathetic, vulnerable leader that actually cares about company culture, or you're going to retire and, or be forced out. So this change that you mentioned, Jeff, it is happening, maybe just kind of happening at a snail's pace right now. So, Mark, you know, in basketball, we all want great cultures and we put posters on the wall and things like that. But, Mark, maybe define what culture is and then what are your non-negotiables in establishing in the workplace a good culture? Well, I think the, the first thing that's very important to say is we, we don't dictate what a good culture looks like because a company in Texas, for instance, might have a completely different idea of, of culture than, than Seattle. 
and or, or New York or Boston. And so we walk people through the process of them defining what their ideal culture is. And we can certainly give them examples of what to do and certainly what not to do. Chris and I have probably each earned a PhD in, in what not to do. Uh, and, and we try to pass that along, but you know, it's, it's, it's different for each company, right? A, a company in Seattle, for example, is going to be very concerned about inclusivity, equality, um, commute times, um, uh, be, be being home for their, for their, uh, when their kids get home from school. Right. And in, and in Texas, maybe they don't care as much about inclusivity or, or gender parity. Right. And it's, it's just different everywhere you go. And, and so there are, however, some common denominators, uh, that, that Chris and I certainly talk about all the time. And, and the primary one, Jeff is, we tell leaders they absolutely must equally value respect in the workplace and results. And as you said in the introduction and followed up with your first question, since the industrial age began, it was all about widgets, productivity, profits. Uh, um, who you were in, you were disposable as an employee, and and it, you don't get the work done. It didn't matter what the problem was. It didn't matter if the, what the if you were properly trained or not, it didn't matter if your boss was a jerk or not, you could be replaced. And and it was not a respectful workplace. It hasn't been for a hundred years. It, you know, think about when I think about like my dad coming home from work when I was when I was in high school, and he would never talk about work. He would never like you left the office at five o'clock. You were home at five eighteen. Dinner was on the table work never came up right well now go on social media and look at everybody under 45 they're talking about work i mean they can't even wait to get home they're on the train tweeting they're 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 tiktoking from the car right they're talking about what a, a crappy culture they're with they're working within or or what what a lousy boss they have right well how do you how do you retain people in that environment how do you attract new people, good people in that environment. So it's, it's not the same. We have to treat people with respect. And if we don't, they're going to talk about it. Okay. Poor work environment, Chris, everyone knows it will affect retention that you're going to lose employees. There's a, a cost figure to retraining people and getting them to the being productive, but doesn't it affect the hiring because of word of mouth or uh, is it glass door yeah. that isn't it going to affect that the hiring process that if you're a leader with blinders on, you know, before you had earmuffs, now maybe you take them off because all your people are quitting and there's a cost to training, but isn't it affecting, you're not going to get the best sales Perkins Perkins isn't going to apply because he knows I've read, I've done research. Isn't it affecting that too? Big time. It's, and again, there's no secrets. I remember um, one, one of my close colleagues um, years ago had a, a wonderful experience going through a hotel with the supervisor of maintenance and janitorial. 
and huge hotel, 600 rooms, kind of a snooty hotel. And the first thing this guy told Scott was, the way you treat others around here is going to be dinnertime conversation that night. Well, now that was 20 years ago. Today, the dinnertime conversation is 24-7 and people are reading Glassdoor. And, and it's interesting because of that, let's call it transparency, really does cause people like Coach Perkins going, I'm not even going to apply there because nine of the last 10 employee comments say that the bosses are jerks. And it's like, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to invest my thinking there. So there's a bit of a, 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 a reality check that says all of our marketing and all of our values and our mission page on the web, none of that means squat unless there are alignment, there is alignment to that. And so we talk a great deal with leaders about you need to be as intentional about what you mean by respect as you are about what you mean by results. So we ask leaders, okay, tell us how, how well are your performance expectations defined and communicated? And boy, they got systems and they got dashboards and they always say, I wish we were better at accountability. We'll come back to that. But there's much greater investment in the structure and discipline of performance clarity, and there's none around respect. And it's like, I, I remember we had a, and, and Mark, we both have stories like this, but we had a boss who we'd done some research, we'd done some surveys, we came into the executive team, reported you know, the findings. And of course, people were very frustrated with their bosses. They were frustrated with policies. They were frustrated with unfair scheduling, unfair payment. It went on and on and on. And it's like the senior leader said, I don't care if these people are happy. I just want them to produce. Okay, this is an even bigger gap with this particular gentleman. But unfortunately, I think, and Mark, you may agree, this is a more common viewpoint. I don't care if you're happy. I don't care if you have well-being. I don't care if you have work-life balance. Get your butt in here, get in the chair and produce. And I don't know that millennials are going to continue to tolerate that very much. They're not doing it well now and Gen Zs are not remotely going to put up with it. We all see the snowball. You guys, when you're talking with leaders, you see the snowball of a good culture or a poor one. How do you stop that snowball from a stubborn leader who just wants more widgets to say, hold on, you need to expand your thoughts because happy workers do matter and they're more productive in all the figures and studies. But how do you stop that stubborn leader from the snowball going down and showing them a better work environment can be a more powerful snowball? Well, uh, first, Jeff, thanks for using the word stubborn because you could have used a lot of other words. <laughs> so, we, again, we face this challenge all the time. So, and, and here's, here's our solution, and we have found it quite effective. 
we help that leader and his leadership team define the values, not just the values that the company lives by, but the behaviors that might indicate whether one is actually living those values or not, right? So for instance, let's say your values, uh, integrity, which is a very common value in the corporate world. Well, your employees know for a fact that you just fudged the third quarter report by moving sales from the fourth quarter into the third quarter, you're probably not living the integrity value, right? So, so once we have objective data about a leader's ability to model and perform and live the both values and the behaviors that, that indicate whether they're they really believe this or not, or maybe they're in the do as I say, not as I do mode still. Well, then you can bring that objective data back to the leader and say, you know, we've talked about this from the moment we helped you define these values and behaviors. We talked about how important it is to model them. That yes, maybe you're chief marketing officer, but you're also chief role model within your team. And, and you're not living up to that right now which means that you can't expect anybody else to do that either, which means the ideal culture that you defined is it's, it, you're, 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 you're making the chasm wider right now through your own personal behaviors. And, and by the way, we have people that go, wow, I had no idea. And then we have leaders that go, so I, I, my my compensation is based on performance. It's based on productivity. It's based on profits. And so, yeah, the, all that sounds good, but if I loosen up on these guys now, if I start treating them with respect now, we'll never get anything done. Well, that's probably not the right leader for that team because everybody else helped him, usually him, define that culture, the values and the behaviors, and he can't live up to it. Well, we, we've had several, Chris and I have started several projects with one leader and ended with another when it became quite obvious that they were absolutely unwilling to serve that in that chief role model role. And if I can, if I can add to that, one of the things we've learned is that if leaders get undeniable data and they're literally painted into a corner, then that's where the, the, the choice comes about. It's like, you don't pay me enough <laughs> to, to like these people or to treat these people respectfully. It's like, this could be an interesting pathway for you. There's a fork in the road here, babe. Where are you going to go? Right? What are you going to do? But the undeniable data can also inspire leaders to go, holy crap. People really don't trust each other. They don't respect each other. Um no one is sharing information. We've got all these mistakes that happened. And in the next day, people are lying about their role. It's like, okay, if you're creating this environment that is based upon untruths, disrespect, cheating, right? And it happens, unfortunately, in many of our organizations, then, then at some stage, this is going to be on a TikTok viral video, right? There's going to be talk about it. And you may not think that your peers who are baby boomers or you've trained them to behave like baby boomers, but 
everybody else is going to pay attention and going to see that the truth is ugly and you're not living the values and behaviors and I can't stay here. Chris and Mark, when you, when we think about leadership, we often, the, the models of leadership are usually are, are the guys. And so for, for us old men, usually that model was some sort of military leader or some famous coach. And it was that, it, you know, a, a Lombardi or a Bobby Knight or, you know, someone like that. When I hear you talk about building a culture and, and respect and vulnerability, I think Ted Lasso. And Ted, Ted Lasso is my favorite role model. Am I missing something? No, it's no. a, it's a great show. He's a great leader. No, I, it, uh, fictional or not, he, he, <laughs> he may be the, 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 the most well-known leader there. They're oh, friends of ours are doing an entire podcast episode by episode of the leadership lessons learned from Ted Lasso. So, uh, and they happen to be female and they nail it every time. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. brilliant. I, um, you're you're absolutely right. When we looked up to, you know, at at one point, you know, my dad always talked about the the people he served in the military with, they were his role models, right? I, I was more sports minded. So, I happened to grow up at a time where John Wooden was coaching UCLA basketball. And it didn't matter who came into those slots. They not only won, they won with an exacting, uncompromising culture. And, and I, read, I, I read something when I was, I don't know, 12, 13, about he, he would take his freshman class and spend an hour before each practice showing them how to put their socks on and tie their shoes because if they didn't take care of their feet, they weren't going to be good basketball players. And I was completely fascinated by that. And, and so, of course, John Wooden went on to do amazing things and wrote several great leadership books that I, that I recommend to anyone. And, and fast forward a few more years, and, and I'm coaching now, and I see John Wooden getting older, and nobody talked about John Wooden's wins. They talked about his legacy. They talked about the the coaches that followed him into college and NBA basketball. They talked about his impact on human beings. And yes, every once in a while they'd say UCLA won, blah, blah, blah. But it John John Wooden was was the was the guy, you know, just a little tiny old guy, you know, later on in his life. And but everybody loved him and respected him and and would run through a brick wall for him. And that's who I knew I wanted to be. And, and so I, you're, you're the, the trouble is we don't have, we don't have people like John Wooden much anymore. Right. I mean, we had coach K, he just left. Um, we have Elon Musk, right. We have Mark Zuckerberg. We, we have president Trump, right. We, we, we have a gap in, in that role model area. And, and I would love to see people start to fix that. Well, and let me, let me jump in again as well. I think one of the things that was most interesting um, for me growing up, my dad was a mortgage banker. 
Well, if you remember the cartoons back then, mortgage bankers were snidely whiplash, right? They were cartoonish. They would throw people out of the right, right out of their homes and stuff like that. And I thought, that's not what my dad does. But it was interesting to watch kind of his business grow. It was his dad's business. So he inherited it. And, and he did a great job. He went on to be very, very successful businessman. And, and there was the conversation, wouldn't you love to come work for me? And I was like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I can't do that. And part of it was I didn't see heart. I didn't see relationships driving things. There was a very and, – and dad was doing what he was taught to do. He was a Navy man. His father taught him the business. Dad was taught to clarify expectations, kick butt on those deadlines, and do it again tomorrow. And I was like, there's got to be something more than this. And so part of what began to inspire me was I started, I started stalking bosses really very young. With, with some of my, my first job was at the local YMCA. I became a YMCA executive for 15 years, but I was watching how coaches became bosses because we were running a campaign or selling Christmas trees or whatever it was. And the reality is too many of the role models were so powerful for them. They couldn't get off the results at all costs. And it didn't matter what your family was needing that night. It didn't matter, you know, that you had finals week coming up. It didn't matter. And so what we've lost is we have a tendency as, as Americans, and, I, and it, could, it could be the old West thing. I grew up in Southern California, shadows of Hollywood. I never had aspirations of, uh, I had musical aspirations, not film aspirations, but we held up really bad behaving people for decades and they got movies, they got big contracts, they got these beautiful big houses and they were evil, mean, self-serving ad nauseum. And so I don't know that we can really blame a lot of baby boomer-like leaders from following those models. But the reality is it just, it flat out doesn't work anymore. The resignation impact, the absence of attracting top talent impact. You, you cannot stay here and sit on that throne saying, I am above all and know all. You can't do that anymore. So would it be fair to say that Leaders that are just are going back to that old model, and 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 I'm, I don't want to throw names out here as far as books, but look, Jack Welch or, or whoever is the problem that now it's a confirmation bias that I'm just looking for someone that agrees with me in in, in terms of the same leadership style versus hey maybe I should look at and I, I forget her name the Prime Minister of New Zealand who has who has been a role model Brilliant. of of vulnerability of 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 leading and. Like that. Well, I think one, you just pointed out one of the few role models running around the planet right now. Uh, and, and what's cool about that is there are young women looking at her going, I can, I can see myself doing that. And 20, 30 years ago, we just, we didn't have that. And, and so that's, that's a super big deal. Now back to the confirmation bias, I'll take it a step further. And Chris, you and I have talked about this so many times. 
we don't want just people who think like us. We want people who look like us, who act like us, who come from the same background as us, who have the same education level that we do. I mean, we are, our idea of succession planning is, has become cloning with different color eyes. I mean, it, it, it really is a matter of, now, sometimes that's not bad, right? Um, we just talked about the example in New Zealand. If, if, if that prime minister is inspiring other young women to step up and, and lead in that way, good for her. Well, but then you have the dark side, right? Then you have the old white guys. We, we actually, um, in our book, we actually call, call old white men out, uh, that, that hire and train and mentor people who look, act, think just like them. We call it boomer male syndrome or, or BMS. And, and we, we say, if all you're going to do is hire people who fit in your mold, then you're never going to fix problems like equality, inclusivity, gender pay gaps. You're, 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 you are part of the problem. If, if that's your approach, you can't talk to us about things like equality and sustainability and all that because you're just bringing guys up that, that happen to be from the same mold you are. And guess what? That hasn't worked for 100 years. Well, and, and what I'd love to, to, to speak to, we're old white guys. You know, all four of us have been influenced by those role models and those expectations. So I think one of the most important things Mark and I try to do, and we've had pretty good success with it, is to be able to accept the fact that leaders are being asked to change. And they have never thought differently. They've never be behaved differently. And they're not confident that going down this kumbaya, yes, guitars around the campfire, I know. Going down that path is going to serve our business and serve our customers. You cannot convince me of that. So we actually have to help leaders say, what if we take the same approach that you've been modeling for decades, formal performance expectations, measure the crap out of them, hold people accountable. What if we do the same over here with respect and values and civility? Let's define exactly what we mean by respect. Maybe it's 10 valued behaviors. Maybe it's 12. I had one client who had 38 valued behaviors, and it worked. It worked. It was a 400-store part of the world's largest retailers. Can we go there? Almost 85,000 associates, and it worked perfectly. And what's, what's interesting is to be able to say, let's just use the same template for managing performance as managing respect, but you have to model it first. You have to live it. You have to coach it. You have to praise it. You have to measure it. All of a sudden now we're giving leaders a little bit of a safety net to say, okay, I know results are critical. They're always going to be critical, but we get better results if we're respectful to each other. And it works. Obviously, there's a reason why a, a leader, in essence, is coming into a new job, either as a coach, as a CEO, whatever level. Generally means that the, the, their predecessor did not do a good job or did not get the results that either the, the board or someone expected. And, and, and Chris, you just kind of touched on 
What's the starting process? What's the first step that that leader has to take if they're going to commit to this? And it's not just putting up posters and putting up slogans and painting their values, you know, uh, in the, uh, you know, in the, uh, the employee manual. Yeah. Where do you truly start to make it stick? Well, that's, that may be the best question of them all. And the answer is simple. Objectivity. Too many leaders, especially if they are internal hires, they already believe what the about us says about the company, about us page on the website says about the company. They already believe all that crap that's always in the first paragraph of a job description, fast paced, dynamic, blah, blah, blah. It's all BS. And, and by the way, even if it's not BS, you probably don't want to work there because if it's that fast paced and that dynamic, you're going to be working 12 hours a day, 70 hours a week, right? So, so we tend to, human nature dictates that we believe in the good. And, and at some point, somebody wrote that flowery paragraph at the top of the job description, and they, they wrote those, that mission statement that's screwed to the wall in the lobby, and they, they listed their company values, and they never touched it again, ever, never. And, and there, there are exceptions there, and there are some very good exceptions. Radio Flyer Company, uh, Bamboo HR, they from the moment they were conceived, they reached out and said, I need to get real data. And, and a radio flyer actually happened later when the grandson of the founders took over the company and said, you know what, this isn't going that great. And I, I was a salesman here as a young man, and it wasn't a good time. <laughs> and so to your point, this new leader takes over third generation him and his brother take over and go, we, I don't want to run the company like that. This didn't work for me and completely reached out to his people and said, what's working, what's not working. How, how can we better support you and your work and your teams? And he did a complete 180 as a leader all by collecting objective data and, and once, once you have that data, as Chris said earlier, now you got a choice to make. Am I going to support the data and the change necessary, or am I going to make excuses? And, and unfortunately, a lot of old school leaders will, will make excuses. Well, and it's, it's interesting, Layson, because the concept for many incoming leaders is to make your mark real fast. Right. To have a clear, you know, direction, to have clear structure, kick butt, take names. And it's like, you don't know crap about, about how this team has been operating. You don't know what the strengths are. You really don't know what the weaknesses are. And so in my career through 15 years of nonprofit and corporate development for 24 years, there's, there's, such magic in the validation that happens with a new leader that sits down and says, tell me how things are going here. What, if you were me, what should you immediately make sure you keep and what should you immediately refine or tweak or minimize or, and all of a sudden by literally respecting and validating the key players, they've been thinking about how to do it better for a decade, but no one's asked them. No one has given them the opportunity to say, 
I, I don't know everything. There's got to be a better way at this. Um, we talked recently about a client that I had. This was way back post 9-11 where they had to literally shut the business down as did many businesses post 9-11. And, and they came back to the, within two weeks, they came back and said, we don't want anybody to lose their jobs. We don't know if we can do this, but what we have to do is figure out how to cut expenses. And within three weeks, they came up with $100,000 in savings. This is in 2001. That was like, well, I've been thinking about these two things. I think it can save us some money. And all, all of a sudden, the senior leadership team said, why didn't we ask them last year? So there really can be a wonderful learning process by putting yourself in that vulnerable position and saying, help us here. Well, and I'll, if you guys don't mind, I'll add one, one quick thought. When you go through this process of objectivity, you not only learn a lot about your company, you learn a lot about yourself, but you also learn a lot about the people that are working with and for you. Because some people are going to jump up like Chris said and said, I got ideas. Nobody's ever asked me, but damn, I got ideas. Let's talk. And then you also have people that go, yeah, whatever. Well, do you want whatever working for you? Or do you want somebody absolutely engaged that's going to help you focus on on, on solutions and commit to implementing those solutions. So you learn an awful lot about not just the company, not just yourself, but the team that, that you're counting on to accomplish the mission that's up there on the wall. And boy, that's a, that's a much better barometer in, in, the, in the culture world. That's a much better indicator of people who are fully engaged and fully committed to the company's success. And... Sometimes we have to look at those people and go, you know what? You're, you, maybe you've been with us 20 years and maybe you provided value in the past, but right now, maybe, maybe we should part ways. Maybe we should let you go be successful somewhere else because you're not contributing to the solution anymore. Jeff, this just confirms so much of what you and I have talked about. I, th I thought we were just kind of like voices in the wilderness with, with certain things. Chris and, and Mark just confirm a lot of the things you and I have spoken about before, even before the podcast. Yeah, we do. And it's nice when you get confirmation. But all right, Chris, accountability. Employees, they're not selling enough widgets. End of the year, we're letting the 20% go. How are we holding leaders accountable to healthy workplace culture and all of that? Great question. One of the pieces that, that Mark alluded to is by helping the leaders formalize their ideal or desired culture in terms of values and measurable behaviors, then we get to take that whole template of how you're managing performance and adapting it to respect to say, good, if integrity is one of your values and you decide a behavior that makes sense in your business is to have people say, I will do what I say I will do, period. That's a very powerful expectation of respect. 
Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter Conversations Beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media.